0: Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, we are back with the Good Life Podcast, and I am thankful today to interview Dr. Greg Peters, Dr. Peters is a professor at the Tory Honors College of Biola University. He teaches a number of topics there as he is leading his students in uh, in the through the curriculum, and also he is uh, on the faculty at Nashota House, which is an Anglican seminary in Wisconsin. So. Greg, uh, we are thankful to have you with us today.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: So he has written several books uh, centering around monasticism, and that is really the the, the emphasis that I, I want us to, to consider today. Uh, some of his books are, uh, I believe, one of the earliest was called Reforming the Monastery, Protestant Theologies of Religious Life, and then... A year later, he published The Story of Monasticism, retrieving an ancient tradition for contemporary spirituality, and then in 2018, The Monkhood of All Believers. So, the monastic foundation of Christian spirituality. So, as you can tell, both by what I've said already and also I know some of his research that is ongoing. Medieval spirituality monasticism is his specialty, so Greg, tell us or if, if you don't mind me not calling you Father Peters, which is your, That's your fine. initial uh, <laughs> title because you are also a rector at uh, at an Anglican church, correct? That's correct I am All right yes, yeah, so I, I see I totally missed that and that that shouldn't happen because that is very important work as well <laughs> so what what is the name of your church uh, Anglican sorry.
1: Church of the Epiphany.
0: Okay. All right. And that's in Los Angeles?
1: It's in La Mirada, the same uh, suburb of Los Angeles that Biola University is located in.
0: Okay. Yes. Well, my my limited knowledge of Southern California geography just, you know, kind kind of puts Los Angeles as one large place that just includes a huge number of smaller places so absolutely that's the
1: way that's the way to think about it i mean i i don't tell people i live in la mirada
0: oftentimes i tell them oh i live in los angeles (laughs) yeah it's just it's just easier that way (laughs) uh i'm with you so how did you develop an interest in spirit medieval spirituality monasticism you know what what is it that really that triggered your curiosity and research in this on this topic
1: it's a great question, and it really is the story of my professional life. I was in my last semester of college; it was a Bible college, uh, so Bible colleges aren't like universities per se, where you you know do kind of a very robust training in the liberal arts. So, we had a more limited uh, you know understanding of classes that had to be taken outside of one's major, and mine was biblical studies. So there was a Church History two class, which was required. There were only two Church History classes, one and two. (laughs) One was the Book of Acts, and two was everything else, to be honest with you. Um, So, you know, that's a lot to cover in a class. Um, Wasn't expecting really to learn anything about the Middle Ages, nor did I have any desire to, to be honest with you. But the professor of that class uh, slowed down long enough in the Middle Ages to talk about Uh, This person named Bernard of Clairvaux, who lived in the 12th century, and he said that he was a a monk and more particularly a Cistercian monk. And being the kid from Virginia that I was, I thought, what's a Cistercian? No, actually, more (laughs) basically, what's a monk, (laughs) you know, and so it just started with that class. And I I finished right after that semester. So I had a lot of free time. So I started reading. Uh, in the area of monasticism and the history of monasticism, and I've just never gotten over it um, is the way that I describe it. I mean, it's coming up on to 30 years now um, since that class, and I've just not stopped being interested in monasticism. So that's what got me started. What hooked me was just this fascination with this institution in the church that clearly God's Holy Spirit had used uh, throughout the history of the church and uh, many remarkable ways, which isn't to say it's not without its historical problems and institutional issues, but it's just become a, it was, just became a passion to really understand this thing called monasticism and how God had used it in the church.
0: All right. So when you, when you were in college, then uh, you get it with your undergraduate degree, you were not Anglican at the time. I was not, I was raised in
1: Virginia as a Southern Baptist. Uh, And then my faith really came alive uh, near the end of high school in an independent Baptist church um, that I started going to because I had some friends there. And my faith just really came alive. And so my my journey to Anglicanism is a is a a longer story that involves my adult life and my early married life. Um, You know, we we became Anglicans, my wife and I, when we moved uh, here to California in 2005, that was uh, the real first time that we were both ready to make that move and had the opportunity to do it
0: okay so i'm sure your research though ties in and i'm not going to ask you how right now necessarily but 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 i'm sure that that those two things tie it together in some capacity because there absolutely, is that.
1: absolutely, yeah, and again, that's a that's a longer story. But if you're going to start reading in the history of the church, it's it's going to raise a certain set of questions, and not everyone answers those questions in the same way. In the sense of becoming an Anglican or something like that, but but for me, yes, my studies in monasticism and my journey towards Anglicanism were very much a part of each other.
0: Okay, so l- looking now at. Really, your it's your, your second book. We'll we'll get to the, to the first one uh, in a little bit. But but this is more of a chronological order. Where and when did monasticism begin? I mean, what is, is commonly you know growing up? I, I heard that that's just something that Roman Catholics started. That is, you know, that there's nothing in the Bible about that, although. That's not exactly true either. So so really, without going into a lecture necessarily, how did monasticism yeah. begin?
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's another great question and one that's really shrouded in history. There's no definitive date or place or person or time that you really can pin that on. Um, You know, Jesus, you know, never said in a Shakespearean way, get thee to a nunnery. So it's not exactly a command born out of the scriptures, you know, like build monasteries. It began to flourish in the fourth century. So that's often where you see uh, the real sources take off in in the fourth century. But um, so you can read in certain works that monasticism started in the fourth century. The better way to say that is it flourished, um, began to flourish in the fourth century but its actual histories are a little hard to pin down. But the other side of this too is you have to know what you're looking for if you want to find something historically. So the moment you say, where, you know, where is the beginning of monasticism historically, you have to have a working understanding of monasticism to go and find that thing back in the historical record. So that's why the scriptures do have certain monastic elements in them. And as much as um, the concept of maybe meditating and contemplating on scripture in a particular way as monastic, uh, the way in which the scriptures encourage us to live simply, to control our tongues, so like references towards something like silence. Those are all monastic, but you know, Christian, but monastic in a particular way. But if those things are constitutive of monasticism, then there they are in the scriptures. But if those aren't really constitutive of, of monasticism, then we wouldn't really necessarily say even those things are echoed in the scripture. So, so there's no one place one can really look. But uh, so that, that's a bit of a historical uh, mystery as to, you know, who would be the first monk or who would be the, what would be the first monastery. Uh, but we know that maybe as early as the 60s, uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians uh, when he's in chapter seven, making reference to this thing called spiritual marriage or synecdochism, is what it later became called. It's, it's that sense that like uh, two people living uh, kind of under vows with each other it might suggest that there there is some proto-monastic elements in the New Testament, but um, you know those stories of Paul the Hermit or Anthony of Egypt being the first monk is just not. And that's not true. It's a, That's a convenient historiography that's not an accurate one. It's just a convenient one.
0: Right. And, and the we know in Scripture that there were men who went to the wilderness or to the desert at times. Going back to the Old Testament, Elijah was a prophet who came out of the desert or out of the wilderness. And he lived there most of the time, though. Then we see John the Baptist who came out. He ate locust and honey. He was a man from the wilderness in the same spirit of Elijah. And then Jesus for 40 days went to the wilderness. And then, of course, Paul says in Galatians that he went to the desert of Arabia for three years. Right. So we could call that a number of things. But one thing you could call it was that for three years, he was under a type of monastic uh, treatment. I mean, he he was separate for a time. So, I mean, that is something that we see clearly in Scripture.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And as long as monasticism has an understanding, and it's accurate, it's an accurate understanding to say that within monasticism, there is this sense of withdrawal into not just the desert, but even the proverbial desert, just away from people. And right, we see that all over the scriptures a lot of people would say maybe something more like monasticism is characterized by the taking of vows, and so we we see some vowel taking in the scriptures uh nazirite vows and stuff but not not in the same way that it's you know developed in monastic history but absolutely i mean in the 13th century you know uh the the new monks of carmel were certainly making the argument that they had been founded uh, by Elijah in the Old Testament, which, which of course, was, you know, his, a little bit historically impossible. Uh, right. But at the same time, you know, it made for a good origin story. So the point of that, though, is not to say that they were lying or trying to be deceitful, but they were looking towards an Elijah or John the Baptist and noticing that monastic-like ethos that those men had adopted. And then the final thing, you know, something else to say, maybe not the final thing, is to say, like, yeah, you know, there was also the enrolling of widows that we have in the pastoral epistles. So, in some way, you know, that kind of enrollment was they were entering into what we might think of as some sort of an order um, of widows. And so, again, that that's very monastic to to be entered into an order uh, like that. So, I, I think collectively, the scriptures paint in broad brushstrokes some monastic-like themes. Uh, Again, without there being the kind of, you know, in as much as, you know, go therefore and make disciples. There's not the equivalent to go therefore and live in a monastery.
0: But nonetheless, I think it's there in the scriptures. Right. There is a general call to make disciples of the nations. And that call looks different based on different individuals' gifts. Yes, absolutely. There are some who are better. At teaching and they need to teach, and then and so on. And again, first Corinthians 7, Paul talks about the need for some to remain celibate. What you know, that he wishes that they would be like he was. So, that is sometimes uncomfortable for Protestants, and, and, and we would certainly push back, at least I know in, in, in our church, we, we push back against the perspective that just, that, that where one does not want to marry simply because, you know, a guy would not want to take responsibility or, you know, it, for, for reasons of immaturity, there are people, and, and of course, I've, I've talked to, to men who, you know, in monasteries, I've heard them speak, before and they and they have to dissuade a lot of young men from going into the monastery after a hard breakup or something like that, right? I mean, exactly. that, that that is a real thing right. that we. So so anyway, not to delve too far afield in that, but mm-hmm. so in your book or in, in all of your books, you talk about what the basics of monasticism looks like for, for, for a man or a woman who is taken at least in, in medieval and in pre-medieval times who has taken a vow uh and and again you you mentioned that that's one one element but i know that there's different orders of you know in, in medieval christendom different monastic orders but is there something that is a, a general overall norm for all who, who were, who were either monks or nuns in the medieval era?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, even though vows might differ, they, they have common themes, um, running through them. One of those is poverty. Now, again, that the, the excess of that poverty, if you will, or the contours of that poverty would be, would vary. But poverty is, is a very common monastic uh, vow to take, um, even if it's not an explicit vow to poverty, it's to some sort of simplicity, which by implication is a, is a vow of poverty. So um, monasticism has always been very um, careful of its relationship to money and it, in its worst forms, you know, that was manifested in the sense that money was kind of material, matters bad, we have to reject it. Uh, in its best forms, it's a stewardship. Um, issue that you know they they vow poverty in order um, not to be caught up in some of the trappings that come with money, uh, but also to help others by divesting themselves um, of money. Uh, another theme that runs through it is celibacy. That's a very common monastic vow, um, even when it's not you know made explicit. Say with the Benedictines, you actually don't vow celibacy, but you know that that is something that is expected of you in your, in your vocation is to remain celibate. And again, in the worst forms of monastic history, that was oftentimes expressed in kind of a sex is bad and therefore should be avoided because, you know, it was, it was, again, it was mucking about in matter or even negative connotations of uh, raising children. But in its better forms, it's about You know, Paul warned us. The Apostle Paul warned us that you know, married couples will have great, greater distractions, which is, I think, just true. Um, And so, monasticism, in order to kind of be more um, single-minded, you know, uh, gave up the married life. And and the final one to to say, which is not a real popular one in the 21st century with a lot of us, is the um, submitting themselves to authority. So even if they didn't take explicit vows of obedience to an abbot, which is exactly what the Benedictines did. And if you read the rule of Benedict, you know, his idea of obedience is very offensive to the 21st century mentality of, you know, what it means to be an empowered person, but it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be abused. You aren't vowing your willingness to be abused by someone in authority. You were willing to submit to that person, um, in authority. And, and so, Um, Those three things, you know, poverty or simplicity of life, celibacy, chastity and uh, obedience are certainly the the three that you the the common across all manifestations of Christian monasticism.
0: Okay, so with that, then probably the most famous monk and or or founder of an order is St. Benedict. He's the one who's most commonly referenced, probably in in our time, at least in the U.S. A lot of that would have to do with somebody like Rod Dreher, who's sure. who, you know who's talked a lot about him, and so in in conservative Christian circles, that's made the rounds. But you know, all the Rule of Saint Benedict, as you, that you just mentioned, it's still published, so it's I, I've seen more than one person say, not just Roman Catholic, but Protestant as well, that it is, there's a lot of wisdom there. And I can say, I mean, there is a lot of wisdom there mm-hmm. or Christians in general in, in the, the way that it, it calls people to a particular life. But, you know, in addition to Benedict, who are some other, wh- or what are some other well-known uh, orders that were founded in the monastic movement? So,
1: uh, though not all Franciscans would call themselves monastic because they make the distinction between monastic versus mendicant, the begging orders. But for the sake of this argument, what I've done in all my books is include the Franciscans as a monastic order. So I'll I'll do it again today to be consistent. Uh, You know, like, you know, Francis becomes, is a well-known figure and, um, you know, is, is a very popular in the imagination of people that think about uh monasticism you know his his uh preaching to the birds you know so you 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 go to a roman catholic hospital or maybe even it's just a former roman catholic hospital they've never taken the francis statue out of the garden and there he is with birds alighting on his habit and things like that and of course francis is well known for his poverty and that's the that's you know one of the main things i would say you know uh, alongside uh benedict you've got like a francis Uh, This might sound a little more niche, but I do think I'm surprised at the number of people that have some idea about Anthony of Egypt, uh, the fourth century monk um, who really kind of was, you know, is very paradigmatic um, monastic, if you will, living in the desert, um, those kinds of things. And so, um, you know, he's famous in Christian history because his, his life written by Athanasius helped to convert Augustine of Hippo. Right. Um, so you, you can't read very far in 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 Christian historical things without running across that story of him and his influence upon um, upon Augustine. And then maybe just a, an, another one to throw out there, which uh, might seem a little idiosyncratic, but I'm I'm actually surprised at uh, how many people know of uh, the Carthusians, but they mostly know of the Carthusians because of Chartreuse, the liqueur um, that the Carthusians hold the recipe to. Um, and a lot of people know, um, like a Thomas Merton as well, uh, because of his, you know, very famous, um, 20th century author, of course, and they might not always understand the distinctions between the different kinds of Cistercians, uh, but they'll often know something of Thomas Merton. Again, if you, if you read even just a little bit in modern spirituality, you're going to encounter his name, uh, for sure. So, yeah. So those, those are those are some of the more well known. If you go a little deeper, someone might you say John of the Cross, and someone goes, "Oh, I, you know, I know, I've heard of that before." And so, right, uh, yeah, yeah, he and Teresa were Carmelites in the 16th century Spain. So, um, so, so they, they're they're a little well known at times.
0: Okay, and then I know probably uh, Thomas Aquinas is popular as well, and he was Dominican he was a dominican so the dominicans uh you know founded
1: nearly at the same time as the franciscans in the 13th century um they were dedicated you know more quickly the 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 order of preachers is their technical name um founded by dominic hence dominicans uh founded about the same time as the franciscans and they they became the university teachers of the middle ages yeah so aquinas that's, that's, that's true i mean if anyone has studied theology, they've certainly heard of Thomas Aquinas um, at some point for sure. Um, and he's there's a bit of resurg- well there's a lot of resurgence among the Roman Catholic theologians of today in his thought, um, and in the Protestant evangelical church, there's more and more a developing appreciation for him—not necessarily agreement, but an appreciation for his for
0: his mind and what he was able to accomplish. Right. Well. You- I know from my own experience I've not listened to a lot of Roman Catholic preaching but often if someone is from the Dominican order they they're just generally better in preaching than I mean that's not just cliché I mean that they are sure, often sure. just often <laughs> have good delivery yeah, still
1: dedicated to again. They were the order; they are the order of preachers, so they're still dedicated to that first and foremost.
0: Of course, something many have heard certainly is, is about the abuse and the abuses that go on. Like any movement, there are you already mentioned excesses. Both on on one hand, the vice can be taking these vows to excess, and then of course on the other hand. It's not taking the vows seriously enough and neglect you know sinners sin. And yes. even those who are who proclaim the name of Christ sin. So the, the Protestants, well, they weren't Protestant at the time, but, but Martin Luther, of course, was himself in a monastery, and, and, and then as the Reformation began There were words given, uh, especially by Luther, but also by Calvin, as well as others, that had some negative things to say about monasticism. And again, in this, you've written an entire book talking about this and reforming the monastery. So in that book, though, you brought out a point that until I'd read it from you, I'd not heard it from anyone, which was to say that the reformers were not necessarily just for the abolition of all things monastic. So so, so tell us about this nuanced view that the Protestant fathers took towards the institutions.
1: Right. And it surprised me as much as it probably surprised you to read it in my book was when I discovered, you know, just the assumption that I had been either told or, you know, kind of implicitly communicated to me was that, you know, monasticism was bad to the reformers, Um, which is, which is true only in a very qualified sense. So for example, Luther himself mostly just rejected to the taking of vows. And even within the taking of vows, what he mostly rejected to was one that even though, you know, monastics said the vows were taken to God, uh, Luther thought, no, they're actually taken to the Pope. So, so his rejection of vows was tied up in his rejection of the office of the papacy. Uh, but then he also thought that a problem with the vows was that they were intended to be lifelong vows, you know, so the, 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 the thought that a 20 year old would somehow be able to discern that he or she was called, you know, for the rest of their life to a monastic life, he thought, you know, no, that that's absurd. And so, so he rejected to the vows in particular, um, Calvin didn't even quite say that much, for example, because as a second generation reformer, there just wasn't, monasticism wasn't as kind of common in his face as it was for Luther. Uh, but they both were able to say great things about goods of monastic institutions, right? Like the, the, the collective communal life, the focus on prayer, um, the focus on what we might think of as virtues, like the exercising of poverty, uh, the ch- right. and chastity and those kinds of things. So they they would have not liked a monk who argued that, that marriage was bad <laughs> and that celibacy was better, but they, they appreciated that some people were called to remain celibate and, the, and monasteries provided that opportunity. Um, so they both had a great love of Bernard of Clairvaux, for example, which is who got me into this whole monastic enterprise. Matter of fact, I mean, they both quote him copiously Yes. Um, and their works, I mean, so much so, uh, there's whole books and articles written on their use of Bernard of Claveau in particular. Uh, Luther Luther looked to Bernard, looked to Francis as positive examples. And basically, Luther says, if everyone could have been a Bernard or a Francis, then absolutely there should be monasticism. But because not everyone is a Bernard or a Francis, you know, monasticism needed to be different, different. So really what Luther and Calvin rejected was the monasticism as it had developed up till their time and in the way it was being expressed in their time. They both were for the institution, but modifying it, reforming it. Um, That never happened quite the way that they had envisioned and, and thought it might happen. But, you know, it wasn't a wholesale rejection. It was a qualified rejection with an intention that if we could just reform this in certain directions, this is a good thing.
0: Right. When, when they were writing, certainly, and, and you know, this, they, they did not start out with the idea that we're going to write, get kicked out of the church, start our own thing. And, you know, that was, that was not the point, but that was in God's providence. That's what happened. Mm-hmm. So, but they're just as with the church itself, also with, Monasteries. There's a lot of of secular politics that was involved in in these things. So probably people make a really big deal about King Henry VIII and the dissolution of the monasteries, as you know, with what he was doing. And there's mostly somebody like Brad Gregory or you know others who, who who say that that was. His step towards moving Britain actually not towards Reformation but secularism. However, <laughs> with that, I mean I'm not I'm not going to sit here and and call Henry VIII a model of Christian charity or anything. <laughs> but there was a lot politically going on with the fact that they owned so much property and there was such control of rome in england i mean th- th- this was a political maneuver as much as it was a religious maneuver absolutely and, and in a time where things could just immediately
1: go to excess i mean we, we know that even in germany i mean that you know luther never well actually you know he never intended to start this thing called the reformation he certainly wasn't keen on the warfare and the bloodshed that resulted from the more radical reformers, you know, which again, it became political very quickly. I mean, establishing Protestantism through warfare as opposed to conversion. And so you're right. I mean, we cannot know the mind of Henry VIII. So we know that if you say, well, Henry just wanted the money, that's that's an overstatement historically in one direction. If you say, well, Henry was just trying to make things Protestant, that's an overcorrection in the opposite direction. The truth is somewhere in the middle and to be honest we don't we don't know the mind of henry on all these things but you're absolutely right i mean these were these monasteries were often not all they were often very large and successful monasteries there were also a lot of small struggling monasteries that actually were poorly run and not healthy in the sense of like their monks actually suffered disease and death because they were too poor to eat well and so henry Closed those as well. Uh, matter of fact, he legislated that monasteries of a certain size had to merge with other monasteries, and that wasn't just to grab their real estate because they didn't have a lot. It really was an attempt to to be thoughtful about, you know, expressing the monastic life. And in time, he came to uh, obviously re- completely reject it. But oh, yeah, I mean, it's it's both, a, you know, it's a secularism, but it, and it but it's just tied up into the secular. Concerns as well, like you say, there, there's money, there's land, um, there's just the capital of l- literacy that monasteries, you know, by and large had a, a better educated uh, group of people. And so when when, when when potential future leaders of nations enter monasteries, they're taking themselves out of useful public service. And so right. you know, Henry yeah. and other princes and all were were not keen on
0: that as well. Sure. So that right, and again, the the, the discussion of, of reformation era politics is fascinating, but not the foremost goal of the discussion today. So, but but yeah. it, it, you can't. Neither can you separate it though from what exactly. was going on. So, you know, if we move further on, as you already said, uh, despite the nuanced view that some of the reformers took. Uh, Overall, it was the Reformation in Protestant countries caused a, a sharp decline in mm-hmm. monasteries and monasticism. But even with later, some later Protestants, it, it's been rediscovered. So, you know, t- tell us about some, some of the modern history real in Protestant circles and, and, and you know, what, what are the, the modern views Now, of course, we know what many that you could hear or or listen to, but, you know, some writers have had some very positive things to say in recent years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, so in the in my book, Reforming the Monastery, you know, there is a there is a historical record of Protestants saying positive things about monasteries and some even postulating. The the reestablishment of communities, they didn't always come to fruition, um, so, for example, one that did come to fruition but didn't last was, you know, Little Gidding, uh, yeah. which the, the Ferrars were kind of responsible for. Now, you know, it's they, they did. It was pejoratively called a Protestant nunnery, but they themselves did imagine it as um, a kind of monasticism, But it, you know, it didn't it didn't last. It, it never really grew beyond their family. Um, so we really have to come to the 19th century. Um, to, to to really see monasticism and Protestantism reestablished as an institution, so not just as an idea that someone could say something positive about, but the reinstitution of it, and it's associated with with Anglicanism in England, and uh, what is known as the Oxford Movement, right, or Tractarianism, that that revival in 19th century Anglicanism um, led by Edward Pusey and John Henry Newman before he converted to Roman Catholicism to recover what we might say are the Catholic practices of the church, small c. Um, Now, that's debatable among scholarship too, but for the sake of argument, we'll say like these, these men uh, led other men and women to kind of see the value in medieval practices or even early Christian practices. Now, we, we would take something like going on retreat almost for granted. But in the 19th century, mid 19th century, going on retreat that that would be labeled that's a Roman Catholic thing to do, right? Hmm. If you if you go on retreat, that is Roman Catholic. So uh, something as benign as going on, you know, spiritual retreats uh, was labeled as Roman Catholic. But these men reintroduced kind of these these Christian practices from the early medieval church, and probably the most one of the most important ones was monasticism. Um, that the baby had been thrown out with the bathwater, if you will. And so they wanted to reestablish monasticism. And so um, people who were influenced by this Oxford movement, uh, some of them uh, felt called to the monastic life. And so they reestablished monasticism uh, in England. I mean, monastic communities uh, by the end of the 19th century, turn of the 20th century, there were dozens of them in England, of course, and then they had spread to the U.S., Um, as well, and to other Anglican-influenced Commonwealth countries. Um, And then in the 1930s and 40s, the uh, German Lutherans got interested in communal life again. And so their communities began to be reestablished there. uh, And subsequent to World War II, kind of the the sobriety that that violent, the two world wars caused among people uh, led to um, lots of men and women uh, the Protestant side desires of monastic life. So kind of some ecumenical, uh, monasteries sprung up in Switzerland and some other places. Um, so that that's really the history of the reestablishment of monasticism. And again, I want to make sure that at first it was very much institutional along some fairly traditional lines, like men and women entering communities, taking vows and remaining there for the duration of their lives. Uh, as, you, as you know Matt it's different now there's a there's a much more wide there's a wider understanding of what it could be to be monastic in in the kind of current uh, Protestant climate um, things like the new monastic movement which is you know 25-ish years old um, you know where people aren't moving necessarily into monasteries, um, and not necessarily even taking vows, not even necessarily, you know, being celibate singles, which was of course the common way that monks lived out their lives. So, um, yeah, so that history of Protestant Protestants coming back around and kind of reflecting back on Luther and Calvin and saying, you know, it it really wasn't a full scale rejection. What if? You know, what if we reestablish these things? Um and so that that's what, you know, in, in, in England it began in the eighteen forties and, and grew and grew and it's it's uh it's waning again um, today, you know, that kind of institutional monasticism, but there's very much a monastic spirit uh, in the monastic spirituality that is called the imagination of Protestants. Uh, it's very much an ethos there, even if, you know, kind of brick and mortar monastic communities are not there.
0: So, so something then like Francis Schaeffer's Labrie would be a, 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 a very – Protestantized, decentralized version, though, with a with roots in a type of monasticism. As, as Absolutely,
1: yeah, it. yeah. That's a great example. Really great example there.
0: So then that leads us then to your to, to your recent, more recent book, "The Monkhood of All Believers," which is a, certain, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, a nice take on. <laughs> uh, the, the, the the Protestant doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. so, so what is the, the monkhood of all believers? what do what, what you what is your emphasis there? Uh, I mean I know I, I've read it and I've gleaned a lot from it so but, but tell us about your goal in just even in the title what you're communicating.
1: Sure. I'll I'll start with the title mostly because it's a, it's, it's a bit of a fun story. Um, so for years, a group of faculty and students out here at Biola would, would play some pickup basketball on a Friday afternoon. And so I was playing basketball with one of my colleagues, Matt Jensen. Uh, He got hired the year after me. So we've, you know, worked together for a long time. And I was telling him about this book that I was kind of just starting and, and, um, he, you know, I said, I, I need a working title because whenever you sign a book contract, you know, they, they, they're they going to put something down. And he I think we played maybe five more minutes of basketball. And right after someone made a shot and there was just a brief lull, he came over and he said, like, the monkhood of all believers. That's that's what your working title ought to be. <laughs> you know, and of course, immediately I knew he was punning on the priesthood of all believers. So that that became the working title that grew on me so much so that when the book was finally finished and it came time to title it. I convinced my editor at Baker academic to, to use the title as long as I gave them the right to kind of develop the subtitle. <laughs> um, sure. you know, so, but, but the book itself was, so if you, if you read the story of monasticism and reforming the monastery, they're, they're much more historical takes. Uh, there's history in the monkhood of all believers, but they're more historical surveys. The monkhood right. was conceived from the start to be a theology of monasticism for the 21st century. Now that, that sounds really amazing. The arrogant, uh, that a non-monastic guy is going to write a theology of monastic life for the 21st century. Uh, but but this is where I was and did theologize about monasticism. And again, I think my my main insight was, again, that definitional piece. what What is a monk? And again, if you think of that as a monk, as someone who's like kind of geographically and physically alone, that's one thing. But as you know from reading the book, um, you know, I think from the earliest history of monasticism, the word itself, monos, the Greek word monos, actually means single-minded. Yes. So it's it's not about being alone. It's being single-mindedly focused on God. Well, of course, we know that that's, that's something that all Christians ought to be cultivating, the single-mindedness, right? So that sends the monkhood of all believers. Um, and so the theology started there. Like monasticism is about single-mindedness, but yet that that's appropriate for all Christians, but, but then like the history of monasticism does have this thing called vows. How how do all Christians live vowed lives? Oh, well, we, we take explicit or implicit vows at our baptism, depending on the tradition. Right. So, so it developed from there. And and then I realized as I was writing this, I mean, I have a lot of friends who are, you know, Roman Catholic monks. They, they live the life, you know, I'm a, I'm a outsider in that regard. Um, And I thought to myself, well, what am I saying about? Am I devaluing um, the vocation of my friends who have joined monasteries and taken these very tangible vows? Like, you know, like, I mean, I've, I'm married. I've taken marriage vows. I'm a priest. I've taken priestly vows. So I, I understand vows, but they've taken the set that qualifies them to, to be monastics in that kind of very traditional proper sense. So, so I realized that it, it wasn't just a theology of monasticism, but it also had to be a vocation. There had to be a piece about like being called uh to the so to the monastic life. So all Christians are called to be single-minded, but then some Christians are called above that to, to work that out in what we think of as traditional monastic communities. So that's what I've tried to do in the Monkhood of All Believers is, is lay out like the way in which we're all monks of a particular sort. And then there are monks of the traditional sort or the historic sort in the in the church has room and needs both of those, I argue, because my main argument for why should we still have brick and mortar monasteries with men and women who take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, for example, is because, well, God still calls people into those brick and mortar monasteries to take vows of poverty, chastity, and monasticism. So therefore, because God's still calling people to that life, there needs to be a place for them to work out that vocation.
0: What. I would add also that your view on you know you, a uh, an Anglican who is writing about a, a theology of monasticism for the twenty first century, if there's only a Rom- the Roman Catholic view, then that automatically excludes uh, quite a few people mm-hmm. from <laughs> f- from doing this. So who better to write? than, you know, about how Protestants can rightly appropriate the best of what's been handed to us in the past. So, you know, it it is helpful to think about. Now, uh, many, uh, again, in our circles, have come across Drader's book, The Benedict Option, and I know there there are a lot of things that, that the two of you say that are similar, but at some points you diverge. So how would you describe the, you know, the areas where where, where you maybe don't necessarily disagree or maybe you do disagree. I don't know how you want to say it, but, Mm -hmm. but where you, you, you take a different perspective on this because some may say, well, isn't, isn't it, isn't both books just saying the same thing? Hmm.
1: Yeah. I don't I don't think so. I mean I, I, I don't need to rehearse it here uh, and I'm not trying to be uncharitable. I, I you know I've I've got I'm on record <laughs> about what I disagree with in the Benedict option. I think a main difference between what uh, Rod Roger and I are doing is Jair's coming at it from a slightly different well maybe maybe slightly different is too modest of a phrase. Maybe it's it's radically different. Um Dreher's coming at it as kind of a critic of of, of culture, a cultural critic. Um, you know, he's, he's looking around and seeing the reality of, of 21st century culture. And then he's saying, you know, we, we need to be like Benedict and kind of flee Fugamundi, flee the world. Uh, it's, it's unsalvageable to some extent. Um, but not only that, but by fleeing what we ought to be doing is, is recreating, uh, the culture, right. Um, along, you know, more biblical, uh, lines, Okay, that I mean, maybe that's true. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not quite as strong of an advocate of fleeing culture as I think, um, as I think Dreher is, Um, and and I'm coming at it from a more theological standpoint. Which is, I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not meaning to say Rod Dreher is not theological. It's just uh, I think he's led with being a cultural critic, and from that perspective, and I've led more with the mind of a theologian um, that has you know, really started off like my, my passion is to, you know, how, how do we all draw closer to Christ and, and, and God himself? You know, how do we participate in the life of the Trinity? How do we grow in holiness? And, you know, that, I mean, obviously monasticism, even though I fell into this area of study providentially, I mean, that's been what's, you know, guided my understanding of monasticism. So when I, when I want to reappropriate monastic tradition, it's it's for the purpose of the church, for the sake of the church, for the sake of godliness. Yes. Um, you know, Dreyer's again it's a little he's got more of a cultural impotence going on there now i w- i will say this is a criticism i i think i think Dreher, rod rod is misreading benedict's life a little bit um you know uh i don't i don't think benedict was necessarily rejecting culture writ large the way i've said it in print is you know benedict you know applied to the university of rome if you will and he went there and he, he, he was a nerdy kid who wanted to read books all the time. And then he was exposed to frat life and was scandalized by the frat life. And so he said, I don't want to stay here. I think I'll just go read books in a cave. You know, and that's a bit of an oversimplification. Um, but that that's different than saying, you know, Roman culture in the in the fifth century is, is more abundant. and has to be fled from in order to recreate a culture. I don't think Benedict went to that cave thinking, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I'm going to become sure. the patron of Europe and set up, a, set up an alternative system. I think he was pursuing a life of holiness, um, that resulted in this, you know, countless numbers of Benedictine monasteries over the years. So my take is more of like culture aside. We're called by God uh, to a life of holiness, to single-mindedness, and so therefore we should take that seriously. Um, But again, we need a theological structure to explain that, to bear that out. And that's what I've tried to offer. So I'm not really... Yeah, I don't know if we should all homeschool or Christian school our children. dreyer has some pretty strong thoughts about that. I, I'm more of a like, well, parents, what you need to be doing is making sure your kids grow up to be single-minded followers of Jesus. <laughs> and and how that happens is, but you know, it's 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 your parenting life alongside the work of the Spirit, both in your life and in the life of your children. Maybe that means starting alternative schooling. I don't know, but but yeah you know so i think that's the main difference between he and i
0: and, right and, and there are i mean in your book you offer specific examples of discipleship and so as a pastor i appreciate the emphasis on discipleship that often can can be missed when you're not immersed in what discipleship is if it's only just what well, you know adopt these practices and and, and personally I mean I, I will say I'm, I'm I'm closer probably to where he is on on the school in question than than where you are but if we only say, well, do X, Y, and Z with your kids, you know, just do these things and then they're going to end up just fine. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's God did not give us organic paint by numbers kits. Right. That, you know, so so we're called to, to manifest, as you said, the life of Christ in our home, in our church, so that others will you know it it would be a pleasing aroma as Paul said a pleasing aroma to those who are out to those who are outside who or you know who have who have the life of Christ or who desire the life of Christ. Now of course to those who don't well it's not going to be pleasing and you know we we just pray for them and, and continue on our way. So How then should a church, one of the things you talk about in in the Monkhood Fall Believers, is that that a church should be a community of prayer. And that's Mm -hmm. that's an area that I have talked about with with people and I've emphasized and tried to emphasize in different ways in the past. How would you say that, that a church should be, and what does it look like to be a community of prayer? Yeah, so this this
1: is uh, stuff I'm working on now, um, but the way in which you know the m- monastic history and monastic theology can really help us frame an ecclesiology for the 21st century. Um, so I'm going to cheat a little bit, Matt, because as an Anglican, we have this Book of Common Prayer, which has built into it a very monastic... I mean, Thomas Cranmer, the architect of the Book of Common Prayer, took the monastic offices and said, you know what? No, no farmer can pray seven times a day in Latin, but every farmer should be able to pray twice a day in English. And so, so the Book of Common Prayer is kind of a monastic document, or at least it's built on a monastic foundation. So for for us Anglicans, what that means to be a church of prayer is that, you know, we encourage our parishioners to pray the daily office out of the Book of Common Prayer, right? The willingness to, to learn how to use it, to make use of it. And then when we come together for Eucharist um, each Sunday, you know that that's the culmination of kind of this uh, life of prayer um, that's been cultivated all week, collectively, even if individually, right? Because we're all praying the same uh, prayers and using the, reading the same scriptures at the prayer times if we're following the same Book of Common Prayer. I still think that's kind of the way any church should think about it. Uh, there's a there's an Anglican theologian named Martin Thornton. Uh, who lived in the 20th century, and y- yeah, y- y- you know, you probably know him. And uh, you know, Thornton basically said the, the the genius of Anglicanism is that it's built on you know daily office, the Eucharist, and kind of personal devotion. Well, that's not unique to Anglicanism, of course, right? So right. again, um, you know, if we take those three things, like you know, encouraging your parishioners to to pray. Daily and not not just extemporaneous, but maybe being willing to to, to get something that would be a prayer life in common. Um, you know, it's important that you know monks prayed together, uh, and, right. and even if we can't do that now, we can still pray the same things together, even when separated. And then right. uh, the Sunday service being um, you know a gathering of the community that's had a shared life together during the week, even if not physically together and the way in which, you know, this the Sunday gathering becomes a, a culmination. And I mean, I would advocate for any tradition that a, you know, a weekly communion service ought to be, um, a you know, a desiderata of the community. And then the way in which people might be led to go on a retreat or fast on occasion or fast regularly, or those things, you know, are or, or that's, that's the, the personal growth that comes out of daily office and in, in the, in the Eucharist. Right. So those things aren't legislated. It's a bit of a strong word. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, right. the, it's not like, the whole congregation has to buy into fasting all day on a Friday, if you will, or something like that. But some might be led to do that. And that would be an outgrowth of that common life of prayer and, and Eucharist. So that, you know again i I'm, I'm i'm cheating here a bit because anglicanism again is built on that foundation of kind of christian monastic practices but i i do i don't i don't advocate everyone become an anglican but i advocate everyone kind of adopt that monastic foundation
0: um right. as a good model the, the habits of daily consistent prayer together mm-hmm. as you said even if it's not physically together but I know I well. You, I, I could say that I'm cheating too because I, even though I'm not Anglican, I use the Book of Common Prayer <laughs> regularly, uh, and it, and have for a little over a decade now, and it has made a significant impact
1: mm-hmm. in
0: my life in the way that it, I mean it has formed me in a particular direction. So. I can say that well certainly I've not been every day twice a day as it's you know as as it's called for still it it has formed me and I'm grateful for that so you know for a church body to learn the habits of walking together in prayer is really helpful and and mm-hmm. very beneficial now before I let you go, I, I know, and, and I, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but you just published a book on, uh, Thomas, a So, so that I, I've not read that. I'll, I'll go, I'll just admit, I mean, I just found it within the last 24 hours, sadly, but <laughs> hopefully it won't be a sad thing for too long, but still, uh, Tell us just a little bit about him. How, how does his his life, his theology, tie into to what you've been doing? And and what did you learn from him that you found interesting? So i I took to reading the Imitation
1: of Christ kind of every Lent. Um, it, it's it is just such a beautiful book of spiritual instruction. Um they got in the habit of reading this book every Lent. And to be honest with you, I, I wasn't thinking so much like as a Kempis as a monastic, but it was just his, the imitation of Christ is just such a important, I mean, it's just such a great, great, beautiful, beautiful work. Um, and so I, I was in this habit of reading him every Lent and, uh, You know, then as I started really thinking about like, oh, yeah, I mean, I have to kind of keep reminding myself, I'm reading a 15th century monastic figure here. um, And my knowledge of kind of 14th and 15th century monastic history was spotty at best. um, And, you know, just I hadn't really done deep dives into 14th and 15th century for 15th and 16th century. uh, Sorry, 14th and 15th century. So the genesis of the book was like, oh, I should I should write some sort of introduction To a campus and it'll force me to to know that tradition better um but really so that's the you know the genesis was a little bit of a just a self-serving like if i write a book on this it'll force me to do some work in that area um and i hope to do more because i've discovered all kinds of fun stuff um but while writing the book and now immersing myself in the imitation you know intentionally every day for months um you know, I just realized how many of his of these monastic themes just come out in that book, right? I mean, it it really is. Um, <laughs> I mean, it it is a book that Protestants love. It's one of the most translated and read books, you know, in the in the history of of, of bookmaking. Um, and, and and if you read it, if you know and if you know monastic things well enough, you you read it, you can see how monastically inspired it is um and so it just brought together like my own desire for ongoing formation with with a spiritual classic that i resonated with and then noticing more and more it's very kind of it it's very monastic but again it's just geared towards everyone so i think that's that the other thing i would say too is like it it is a book for the monkhood of all believers right it 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 it, it is just accessible for all of us who are monks of, of that particular sort mm-hmm. um so it, 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 it was surprising how amazingly monastic I was able to really see it as um, I, I don't I don't latch on to that per se in the book. Um, right. But, you know, really kind of, wow, if, if everyone's a monk of a particular sort, what would be the kind of book that everyone should read in formation? And for me, apart from the Bible, it's The Imitation of
0: Christ. Just uh, an amazing, amazing work. Well, that is a good recommendation for everyone Uh, in in addition to 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 your works on monasticism which have just really interesting and fascinating and much that we can learn from them so greg i appreciate it this has been really good it's been very helpful so uh, i thank you for taking the time to meet with us today
1: absolutely happy to do it it's great